Welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this podcast is brought to you by Media Gratii. You can find more of their output at mediagratii.org. We'd be grateful too if you'd perhaps leave a review for this podcast if you're appreciating it. What we do each week, God helping us, is to focus in on a particular sermon preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I hope if you're listening that you know who that is. If you don't, then I can tell you that he was born in 1834 on the 19th of June. He died in 1892, and he was an English particular or Calvinistic Baptist preacher. Now, Spurgeon was renowned in his day and has been appreciated since as a preacher of the gospel. To be renowned doesn't mean that everybody applauded him. Some people despised and hated him. But his faithfulness and, with the blessing of God, his fruitfulness have made him abidingly a remarkable figure on the evangelical scene. We don't study his sermons simply because we're impressed by him, uh, but we want to learn from him. We want to understand more and more what it means to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. So each day we read a sermon and you can find us on X at Reading Spurgeon and get some quotes most days. And then, as I've said, the the weekly featured sermon gives us that representative sample of the output. This week we've come to Sermon 1139. We're reading from 1137 to 1143, but it's 1139 that is this week's featured sermon. And just looking ahead, if you want to join us next week, God willing, we're moving on to 1148 for our featured sermon. That's the parents and pastor's joy. The parents and pastor's joy. So do come back for that if you're able. Uh, And in the meantime, let's dive into this particular sermon. The Minister's Plea is the title. It was preached on the 2nd of November, 1873 at the Tabernacle in Newington. And the text is Philippians 1 verse 19, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon wants us to learn from the Apostle's example to look at the end as well as at the beginning of things. He tells us that the bud of our present trouble may have no beauty in it, but fair will be the flower which will ultimately develop from it. The clouds hang heavily over our heads, but let us not, like little children, be alarmed at their blackness, but remember that they are big with mercy or pregnant with mercy and will break with blessings on our head, quoting, I believe, William Cooper. Now, whatsoever happens to the true servant of the Lord, then, will turn out for the furtherance of the gospel. Therefore, will we rejoice in tribulations and accept God's will, whatever it may be. But he also wants us to observe that the apostle did not expect that good would arise out of everything apart from prayer. And and this is a, a quite a conversational introduction where Spurgeon's just teasing out some of the elements of his text, driving us towards the main thrust of his sermon. Spurgeon tells us then that Paul looked for the transformation of the evil into good by that sacred alchemy of heaven, which can transmute the basest metal into purest gold. But he did not expect this to happen apart from the ordained methods and ordinary institutions of grace. He counted upon the result because he saw two great agents at work. 
namely prayer and the supply of the Spirit. Whoever else may be foolish enough to look for effects apart from causes, the Apostle was not of their mind. And so, with that very brief and, as I say, quite uh, light in the sense of a conversational, the tone is, is, is quite accessible, that quite, therefore, straightforward introduction, he tells us that he's preaching a sermon mainly on his own behalf and on behalf of his brothers in the ministry. We ought sometimes, he tells us, to have a sermon for ourselves, for we preach a great many for others, and we may the more boldly become pleaders on our own account, inasmuch as what we ask for is really intended for the profit of our people and for the good of Christ's cause. So, in asking the saints to pray for them, he says, actually, whatever blessing we obtain is ultimately a blessing for you. So, he's going to speak on two things that are intimately connected and which cannot be separated. First of all, the prayer of the church, and then the supply of the Spirit, straight out of that text, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. With regard then to the prayer of the church, Spurgeon tells us that the apostle evidently expected to be prayed for, and truly he says, I wish that all pastors could always, without doubt, assume that they enjoyed the perpetual prayers of those under their charge. Some of us are very rich in this respect, and this is our joy and comfort, the reward of our labour and the strength of our hands. We have abundant evidence that we live in the hearts of our people, but I am afraid that there are many of my brother ministers who are sad because they hear not their people's loving intercessions, weak because they are not prayed for, and unsuccessful because they have not so gained their people's affections that they are borne upon their hearts at the mercy seat. Unhappy is that minister who dares not take it for granted that his people are praying for him. Perhaps I could ask you, does your minister know that you are praying for him? Could he take that for granted? Paul exceedingly valued then the prayers of the saints. Though an apostle, he felt that he could not do without the intercessions of the converts at Philippi. And then he expected great results from the prayers of the church. Beloved, says Spurgeon, my heart has no deeper conviction than this, that prayer is the most efficient spiritual agency in the universe next to the Holy Ghost. He is omnipotent and doth as he wills. But next to the omnipotence of the indwelling spirit is the potence or power of prayer. Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. This great charter of the Church of Jesus Christ confers upon her powers which are almost, if not quite, omnipotent, all-powerful. And if a church will but pray, it shall set in motion the second most potent agent under heaven. The Apostle knew the power of prayer, and we know it too, and hope to prove it more and more. And then Paul expected the people at Philippi to be praying for him all the more because his troubles were just then more heavy than usual. And Spurgeon tells us that uh, you need to pray for your pastors because they're beset by legions of evils of all kinds and sometimes there are particularly difficult seasons. So the apostle evidently expected to be prayed for. He exceedingly valued the prayers of the saints he expected great results from the prayers of the church and he expected the people at Philippi to pray all the more because of his distinctively heavy troubles. So what then is, is the substance 
of Paul's claim. What's the, the, the thrust of Spurgeon's ministry here? It is, first of all, that the ministers of the gospel may justly claim the prayers of their brothers. So he's set the scene. This is Paul. What applications almost do we draw from this? That ministers may justly claim the prayers of their brothers. Every Christian should be prayed for. We have each a claim upon the other for loving intercession. The members of the body of Christ should have a care for one another, but especially should the minister receive the prayers of his flock. So he he now picks out why that should be the case. Well, I've sometimes heard his duties called arduous, but that word is not expressive enough. The minister is sent to be God's messenger for the quickening of the dead. What can he do in it? He can do nothing whatever unless the Spirit of God be with him through the prayer of his brothers. He is sent to bring spiritual food to the multitude. That is to say, he's to take the loaves and fishes, and with them, few as they are, he is to feed the thousands. An impossible commission. He cannot perform it. Apart from divine help, the enterprise of a Christian minister is only worthy of ridicule. Apart from the power of the eternal spirit, the things which the preacher has to do are as much beyond him as though he had to weld the sun and moon into one, light up new stars, or turn the Sahara into a garden of flowers. We have a work to do concerning which we often cry, who is sufficient for these things? And if we but be but put to this work, but have not your prayers, and in consequence have not the supply of the spirit, we are of all men the most miserable." So the duties of a minister put a claim upon the prayers of our brothers. Then there are the remarkable responsibilities of the minister, the distinctive ones that cluster around the preacher of the word. When I look at Paul labouring night and day, says Spurgeon, weeping, praying, pleading, pouring out his soul in his ministry, I feel his example to be so high that I cannot attain unto it, and yet I shall never feel satisfied with anything below that standard. Uh, there's, a, there's a book which I had a, a large part in writing called A Portrait of Paul, published by Reformation Heritage Books, and, and it seeks to set out this man, Paul, as an example for gospel ministers. And the minister who studies the Apostle Paul will feel the weight of that uh, portrait, the weight of that example hanging before him. So his duties, his responsibilities, and his experience too. A physician who has to treat the diseases incident to our flesh need not have personally suffered from the sicknesses with which he deals, but a physician of souls never handles a wound well unless he's felt a like wound himself. The true shepherds, who really feed the sheep, must themselves have gone through the experiences of the flock. Spurgeon reminds us that you cannot bring forth God's living word to others till you've first eaten the roll, and it's been in your own stomach like gall for bitterness, and yet at times like honey for sweetness, drawing on the the biblical imagery there of uh, Ezekiel and John. Every successful husbandman in the Lord's vineyard, all of the, the gardeners in the vineyard, must first have been a partaker of the fruit, yes, and of each kind of fruit too. Hence it often happens that to comfort yonder desponding heart, we must have been ourselves despondent. To console yonder downcast despairing spirit, we must have been despairing too. To direct the perplexed, we must ourselves have been in dilemma. Then there are the particular temptations of those who serve in the public ministry. 
Do you suppose that a man attracts thousands to listen to him? asks Spurgeon. That he conducts large agencies successfully? That he wins souls to Christ and edifies the household of faith? And that the temptation to pride never crosses his soul? And I think most ministers would assure you that you don't need thousands of hearers. The uh, successful conduct of large agencies, the great winning of souls in order to be tempted to pride. Have you not seen men, says Spurgeon again, who've been set upon a pinnacle of eminence and their heads have been turned and they have fallen to their own disgrace and to the church's sorrow? Do you wonder at it? If you do, you know not what is in men. And do you wonder that ministers are often tempted to grow formal in service? Here, so many times in the year, must I come and speak to you, whether I am fit to do so or not? How can I be always alike zealous, when even the weather has an effect upon nerve and brain? Are you always earnest in your hearing? Do you wonder, therefore, that sometimes the preacher does not find it easy to be earnest in his speaking, and yet he would loathe himself if he dared speak to you what he did not feel, and would think himself accursed if he dared to preach with cold and chilly lips those matchless truths which have been bedewed by the bleeding heart of Jesus? It's the the preacher's agony of wanting to, to... to know in his own experience of soul the the truths that he preaches and and perhaps feeling it in the pulpit, uh, but uh, not to the extent that he should or, or, or having some sense of it in his study, but not being able to carry that into the pulpit, uh, walking out of the, the pulpit every Lord's Day, feeling that you've fallen short of what you wished to say in terms of the honor of God and his Christ. So we who would instruct others, says our preacher, must keep up our spiritual life to a high point. And yet the temptation is, from our familiarity with holy things, to become mechanical in our service and to lose the freshness and ardour of our first love. And then, whoever leads the way in the church will be the main object of the assaults of the enemy. The private Christian will have some persecution, but the minister must expect far more. His words will be misrepresented and tortured into I know not what of evil, and his actions will be the theme of slander and falsehood. If he shall speak straight out and boldly, fearless of man and only fearful lest he should grieve his God, he will stir the kennels of hell and make all the hounds of Satan howl at his heels, and he may count himself happy if he shall do so. For who is he that wants to be on good terms with this evil generation, which cares nothing whatever for God's truth, but sets up for its own church, a church which has made a league with Antichrist and a compromise between the gospel and idolatry, so that it may drag down this nation into the deeps of Romanism? Yes, he says, many of the archers who sorely shoot at us and grieve us, Pray, therefore, that our bow may abide in strength and that the arms of our hands may be made strong by the mighty God of Jacob. And then amongst the worst trials of the ministry are the discouragements of it. He says, not just from the outside world, we expect that opposition. If the world hates us, we know that it hated the Lord before us. But our saddest discouragements arise from within the church and the congregation. There are those whom we hoped to see converted who go back to their old sins and disappoint us and others who are a little impressed relapse into their natural indifference. There are those who are, we hope, right at heart 
who nevertheless live inconsistently for many walks so far from Jesus that they pierce us with sorrow. And then there are others who profess great things and unite themselves with the church of God, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They shame us. They make the world to say, is this your religion? They open the mouths of atheists and infidels and ungodly men of all sorts against the precious Christ himself so that he is wounded in the house of his friends and put to an open shame by those who ought rather to have laid down their lives to promote his cause and kingdom. Oh, if you be called of the Lord to shepherd his flock, and if you bear in your bosom the church of God and the cause of Christ and live for it with all your heart and soul, you shall not live many days without many heart-breaking trials, and you will greatly need the supply of the Spirit in answer to the prayers of the people of God. So you see how he's building his case with regard to prayer. The apostle expected prayer. He valued that prayer. He expected great results from that prayer. And he expected the saints in Philippi to pray for him, particularly because of his needs. And in a similar fashion, then, ministers may justly claim the prayers of their brothers because of their duties, responsibilities, experience, temptations, assaults and discouragements. Furthermore, he goes on that the prayers which are wanted are the prayers of the entire church, and that means all the faithful. Even if you feel laid aside from the actual service yourselves so that you have to abide by the staff, I think the the reference there to Joshua fighting down in the valley while uh, Aaron and Hur held up the uh, hands of Moses as he uh, lifted the staff up on the mountainside, He said, if that's the case, if you're on the mountaintop rather than down in the valley fighting, then let your prayers go up doubly for those who go down to the battle. Hold up their hands, I pray you, if you can do nothing else. Then, not just all the faithful, but specifically, what of those who profit by our ministry? If you feed upon the word, pray to God that we may feed others also. If your hearts are ever made glad within you by the word we speak, do plead for us that we may have the power of God resting upon us yet further. If you do not profit, we have an equal claim upon you. We beseech you, pray that you may profit. If we're not suited to teach you, pray the Lord to make us suitable. If you discover some lack or deficiency which mars our ministry, do not unkindly go and speak of it everywhere, but tell the Lord about it. You'll be doing more good and acting more after the mind of Christ, and who knows? The very ministry which is flat and unprofitable to you now may yet become a great blessing to you when you've prayed concerning it. Then what if you are actually our spiritual children? When fathers and mothers and husbands and wives will find all human relationship forgotten, the relationship which exists between the spiritual father and his children shall last on. Therefore, as you feel the tie, yield to its gentle persuasions and let your pastor have a very warm place in your prayers. He says, if you're aged men and matronly women, if you've got experience of the power of God, if you're mighty in your private wrestlings, he says, then also we want your prayers. Then what of you young Christians, even you boys and girls, will you not intercede for us? What for those who are not and could not be there this morning? He says, I'm going to preach to them through the press. They're going to read my sermon. We might say today, if you couldn't come to church, but you you were able to watch a recording or the live stream, you cannot come up to the house of God, but you've been appointed to lie tossing upon the bed of pain. 
and yet from you also we ask intercessory prayer. You are especially set to do this service for the church. If you cannot appear in the public assembly, you may in secret wrestlings bring down power upon that assembly. You keep the watches of the weary night when pain forbids your eyelids to find rest. Let each weary hour be cheered for yourselves and enriched for us by prayers for the church of God and prayers for us. Perhaps to this end some among the saints are always sick, that warders for the hours of night may not be wanting. The sleepless sufferers change guard before the mercy seat, lest perchance there should be an hour in the night unhallowed by a prayer in which the world should pass away beneath the unrestrained wrath of God. Then, again, the prayers of God's people in all those variations ought to go up for the minister in many forms. I think he says it should be a daily work. He said how glad he was to hear one of the brothers say the other day that he never did pray for himself without praying for Spurgeon, that he never bowed his knee without remembering the work carried on in this place. Some of you will know that Spurgeon, when asked about the secret of his success, as it was esteemed by men, said, it is that my people pray for me. And that's then not a boast. That's a a marvel of gratitude. And, And that's Spurgeon saying, that man is under God a reason why I obtain the blessing that I do. What about the family asking God to bless the ministry under which they sit? Rather than scorching the preacher with their criticisms, how about beseeching a blessing through their prayers? Then there are our prayer meetings. As I look around upon you today, says the preacher, I cannot help remarking that I see some faces on the Sabbath which I never have the pleasure of seeing on the Monday evening, which was when the tabernacle then held their prayer meetings. I think they maybe still do. Or if ever I did, he says, I remember it very well because it's not been so common an occurrence that it's likely to slip out of my mind. I know there are some who could not come and would be neglecting family duties if they did. Their duty and their calling keep them from it. At the same time, there are others to whom a gentle hint may be serviceable. That's one of Spurgeon's gentle hints. You wonder what one of his robust exhortations might be. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, in this case for earnest prayer, as the manner of some is. Then what about Christian friends who gather by appointment for prayer? When two Christians meet together for united prayer, amongst their other supplications should be one that the Lord would bless throughout all England the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. Oh, dear friends, we want more than anything else to have the gospel preached with power. God forbid we should criticise severely those who may be doing their best, but how much preaching is utterly powerless. We want a telling ministry. We want a ministry which cuts like a two-edged sword and goes through into the very heart. God send us thousands of men armed with his spirit's own sword, endowed with the muscle of grace and gifted with manliness to use the celestial weapon. Then there's a special prayer by each Christian for his own minister before every service, before going up to the house of the Lord and when he arrives there. It's well to pick out someone in the congregation and pray, Lord, bless the word to that one and that one. So you're not just praying necessarily for the man who's going to stand in the pulpit, but for the the friend who's sitting in the pew. Then you'd often find God hearing you in that respect. And when the whole service is done, what can be better than to rake in with earnest prayer the good seed which has already been sown? 
but he says, I can't keep you much longer here. Suffice it to add that the prayers of the church of God must always be true prayers to be good for anything. And if they're true prayers, they'll be attended with consistent lives. Typical of Spurgeon to to throw this in. Consistent living there must be, or prayer will be a vanity of vanities. And there must be consistent effort too. If I want God to bless the church, I must try to bless it myself by the gift of my substance, by the consecration of my talents, by the laying out of my time for the glory of God, for to pray one way and to act another is to be a hypocrite. And when the wheel sticks in the mire, to pray to God to help the cart out of it and never to put my shoulder to the wheel is to mock the Most High. We must act as well as pray, and we must believe as well as act. We must have faith in the gospel and faith in prayer. And if, beloved friends, such prayer as this shall go up from this church, we shall continue to enjoy the prosperity we've had for many years. And we may hopefully look for an increase of it, though sometimes I must confess I can hardly look for an increase, for God has blessed us so much that we have rejoiced and wondered as we have seen that his hand is stretched out still. It really is quite a a masterful setting forth of the the apostolic expectation and then the the application of that to uh, ministers like Spurgeon and his brothers because of their duties, responsibilities, experience, temptations, assaults and discouragements. Then he says, we want everyone to be praying for the blessing of God's word through his servants, for all who are faithful, for all who profit, for our spiritual children, for the old and the young, uh, for those who can't attend in person. And then let those prayers go up in many forms as your daily intercessions, in your family devotion, in the prayer meetings, when you gather for specific times of prayer, when you're sitting in the congregation before the service and then after the service as well. He says, whatever you do, pray from a heart, pray out of a life that is in keeping with your pleading. And then this connection with the prayer of the supply of the Spirit. And again, Spurgeon's going to be brief and pointed at this point. The Holy Spirit, he says, is essential to every true minister. Uh, Spurgeon's a, a real theologian of the Holy Spirit. We must have the Holy Spirit, he says. A preacher may save souls without being learned. It's a pity, but what he should possess a good ed- education, but he can be useful without it. The preacher can save souls without eloquence. Yes, it's grand if he's fluent, but even stammering lips may convey the life message from God. But the man of God is nothing without the Spirit of God. It is the sine qua non, the the without which nothing, the essential part of a ministry from God that it should be in the power of the Spirit. For the preacher must be himself first taught of the Spirit, otherwise how should he speak? The Spirit of God must teach us the truth and then guide us as to which truth is to be spoken. Then the Holy Spirit must inflame the minister, the man who never takes fire. How is he sent of God? He who never glows and burns. What knows he of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which is also the baptism of fire? Pray, therefore, for the supply of the Spirit. Without the Spirit, every ministry lacks that subtle, I was about to say, indescribable something which is known by the name of unction. Nobody here can tell what unction is. He knows that the Spirit of God gives it, and he knows when it's in a discourse and when it is absence. 
but unction is in fact the power of God. This is this is a, a a theological experimental label for the sort of the lifting up and carrying along by the Holy Spirit, particularly in the act of preaching. Spurgeon says you you cannot define it, you cannot demand it, but you know when it is there. And the same sermon then may be preached and the same words uttered, but without that unction from on high, there's nothing in it. The unction of the Holy One is true power. Therefore, brothers, we need your prayers that we may obtain the supply of the Spirit upon our ministry, for otherwise it will lack unction, which will amount to lacking heart and soul. It will be a dead ministry, and how can a dead ministry be of any service to the people of God? Then this supply of the Spirit is essential not only for the preacher, but also for the edification of the church of God. For what if the ministry should be the best that ever was produced, its outward form and fashion orthodox and ardent? And it's good for us, listening to Spurgeon's sermons, to remember that apart from the Holy Spirit, whatever gifts he may have been given by God on the natural level, it's nothing without this power from heaven. What? if it should be continued with persevering consistency, yet the church will never be built up without the Holy Ghost. To build up a church, life is needed. We are living stones of a living temple. Where is the life to come from but from the breath of God? To build up a church, there is needed light. But where is the light to come from but from him who said, let there be light? To build up a church, there is needed love, for this is the cement which binds the living stones together. But where does true, genuine love come from, if not from the Spirit, who sheds abroad in the heart the love of Jesus? To build up a church, we must have holiness, for an unholy church would be a den for the devil and not a temple for God. But whence comes holiness, except from the Holy Spirit? There must be zeal, too, for God will not dwell in a cold house. The church of God must be warm with love. But where does the fire come from except the fire from heaven? We must have the Holy Ghost, for to build up a church there must be joy. A joyous temple, God's temple, must always be. But the Spirit of God alone produces the fruit of heavenly joy. There must be spirituality in the members, but we cannot have a spiritual people if the Spirit of God himself be not there. So for the edification of the saints, we must have beyond everything else the supply of the Spirit. And I hope that your soul says a hearty amen to such a statement. And he goes on, we must have the Spirit for the salvation of sinners. Now this is the tug of war. Who can enlighten the blind eye? Who can make the deaf ear to hear? Who can make the dead soul to live if not the eternal enlightening quickening Spirit? The Ezekiel vision of the vast valley full of bones. Can we make them alive? No, even even so we say to the dry bones, live, and the mission's absurd, worthy of laughter, unless we have your prayer and the supply of the Spirit with us. Oh, invoke the Spirit and minister in his might, and marvels shall yet be done, says our preacher. And then we must have the Spirit of God just now, I am sure. It's essential to the progress of the gospel and to the victory of the truth. At this moment, he says, the gospel's on trial. It's had its trials before and has come out of them like gold from the furnace. But they're telling us now everywhere that the old-fashioned gospel is a fate. It's uh, uh, a pathetic, spineless, 
a limp, uh, empty thing. I have found myself dubbed in the public prints by the honourable title of Ultimus Puritanorum, the last of the Puritans, the last preacher of a race nearly extinct, the mere echo of a departed creed, the last survivor of a race of antiquated preachers. And he says that's not true. They come, they come, a mighty band, to bear on the truth to future ages. And even yet there are among us men who hold the truth and preach it. And there may be fewer in our day, I would add, but but praise God, there are men who will preach in that tone and with that substance still. So he says, O God, the God of Israel, avenge your own truth. O you whose mighty hammer can yet break rocks in pieces, you have not changed your hammer. Smite then and make the mountains fall before you. O you whose sacred fire burns in your word, forever the same flame, you have forbidden us to offer strange fire upon your altar, and we have not done so, but kept the faith and held the truth. Own it, we beseech you, and prove that it is the gospel of the blessed God. Let the sacrifice that is now before you in the midst of this great nation be consumed with the flame of heaven, and let the God that answers by fire be God." The fact is then the church only lives in the esteem of men by what she does. If she does not convert sinners, she has not a reason for existing. Spurgeon is is setting us an example there, isn't he? Not just of what it is to preach about praying, but to pray in his preaching. And so he says, pray then that God will bring to the front the old gospel, the doctrines of Whitfield and Calvin and Paul, the old gospel of Christ, a once for all by a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit, give an answer to those who in this age of blasphemy and of rebuke are reviling the gospel of the living God, would have us cast it behind our backs. By the name of him who never changes, our gospel shall never change. By the name of Christ who's gone to heaven, we have nothing to preach but Christ and him crucified. By the name of the eternal spirit who dwells in us, we know nothing but what the Holy Ghost has revealed. To your knees, my brothers, to your knees and win for us the victory. Feeble as we are and unable as we are to cope with our antagonists in any other field but this, we will vanquish them by the power of prayer through the supply of the Spirit of God. Well, friends, if you're listening to these things, I hope it sets a spark in your heart that you will pray to God for the glory of his name in the ministry of his truth, that by your prayers, those who make Christ known might enjoy a supply of his spirit, the likes of which they have not known before, that in the midst of all their needs, they might find those needs wonderfully supplied by the spirit of God and that you will benefit from it as your preacher preaches as he's never preached before, as your pastor speaks the truth in love with a brightness and a clearness and a highness and a sweetness that you've never before enjoyed. If you have a moment, pray for me. Pray for uh, the people who will stand this coming Lord's Day. Pray for us who are preaching week by week. Ask God for your own ministers above all that where you are sitting, that word may come with power, that the Holy Spirit may be present in that distinct way that makes you to say, it is good that we have been in this place. May God then help us. May God indeed lead us 
and guide us in our praying that we may be blessed under the ministry of the word. I hope you'll join us again next week. As I said, it's 1148 is the next sermon, the parents and pastor's joy. And may our prayers be the means of securing such blessing that not only will our pastors and our parents rejoice, but every Christian will give thanks to God for mercies richly received. Until then, may God bless each one of us.